who's joining us on Facebook to Office Hours, our study of the book of Job. Here, our third week. My name is Chris Holmes. I am the Stembler Scholar in Residence at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. And I'm joined by the much hairier uh, person with much more flowing locks uh, to my left. Who are you? Uh, my name is Brennan Breed, and uh, I am Associate Professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary. Uh, and yeah, uh, in the middle of COVID, um, I, I have too much of this. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about cutting it and making like a mittens or something and selling them. Okay. <laughs> like my little craft, yeah. raising money. Um, but, uh, and we are, we are both uh, joined, um, and we are so grateful uh, to uh, Dr. Brent Strawn, uh, who is Professor of Old Testament at Duke University, uh, teaching at Duke Divinity School, um, uh, a former teacher of uh, both uh, Chris and I, someone that we both owe a lot of uh, um, gratitude to uh, for teaching us so many different things. Um, and uh, we are really grateful for Brent, uh, not only because he's a great speaker, a great teacher, great researcher and writer, but also, um, at least just speaking for myself, I, I think of Brent is one of the most uh, creative and wide-ranging uh, scholars working in biblical studies today. Uh, Brent is uh, somebody who can focus on minutia of text criticism, um, you know, looking at ancient manuscripts and comparing them. He's someone who thinks about art uh, and the kind of art of the ancient Near East more broadly and uh, metaphor theory, uh, literary theory. He can write uh, papers on cognitive neuroscience and uh, what it's like to be a bat. Um, and then thinking about the Psalms through that. Um, uh, he, he literally is a, a polymath getting interested in just about everything. And um, we are uh, blessed this, um, this, this study uh, with really a bunch of people who have so many different uh, amazingly wide ranging interests. So I'm sure Brent will bring a lot of his learnings in uh, today. So I'm eager to, to um, uh, pepper him with questions about, about Job. But uh, uh, one thing we, we usually begin with, and we usually start oh, by uh, asking- Before we, before we yes. begin with that, I do think it's worth pointing out out, uh, that Brent is the only professor that I've ever worked with whose syllabus has a parental guidance warning on it um, mm, for okay, explicit sure. content. And I just, <laughs> I just want to, I just want to point that out that that's that true, um, he he is a professor who can blend Alanis Morissette uh, and and hip hop in his intro to Old Testament classes uh, with with the 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 grace of a ballet dancer. So uh, we are. We're, I just wanted to point that out, Brennan. Please, please thank proceed. You, but you. yes, well, I, I, I just want. I just want to point out that Saint Alanis, Saint Alanis. I'm sorry, Saint Alanis. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, thanks for yeah. I, I didn't know you were an Episcopalian, but um, yeah. Uh, but one one other thing to say is uh, that Brent is one of the only biblical scholars I know who could complete this sentence, which is too hot to handle, too cold to hold. Grab the Ghostbusters and they take control. You know, I mean, it's, I think that's. I think that's that's it, isn't it? Um, yeah, Bobby yeah. Brown, so, uh, circa yeah. 1987, maybe 88. Yeah, late 80s. 89. Late 80s, yeah, late 80s right, right around Ghostbusters 2, I think. Uh, nice. Yeah. Is, yeah. It's a yeah, classic, so, really. Yeah. And right Ghostbusters there was... should always be this sort of marker of time, like which, which Ghostbusters are in. An yeah. era defining moment. Yes, yes. All right, enough so, of this. 
Yes, so thank besides, you. Besides your uh, uh, late 80s hip-hop hermeneutic. Um, uh, golden age, usually, by the way. That's the golden age of hip-hop. Golden age. I agree, actually. <laughs> so uh, we, we um, uh, usually ask folks who are guests uh, on Office Hours to uh, just share with us, um, and this, of course, can't be comprehensive and so on, but just to share with us some of your um, kind of guiding uh, hermeneutical or theological assumptions. What do you bring with you to reading a text that, uh, that you usually want to communicate with your students or um, with folks that you're teaching? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> Let me just say first, thanks for, for having me all. It's fun to be with you guys and see your faces and <laughs> have great memories, of course, uh, with each of you in the past in Atlanta and classrooms and everything else. And uh, glad to see you doing this wonderful thing with office hours. So cool and happy to be a part. Um, <clears throat> to, the, to the question proper, um, Chris might remember this from TA for me one one time years ago that but in my in my intro classes I, I sort of uh, am fond of lists of four things uh, and I find that five is too many uh, I can really not remember five and three is just not enough with all due respect to the Godhead and the doctrine of the Trinity uh, four however seems to me just right and I, I do, uh, in my introductory classes, start with four things that, of kind of starting points where I come from when I teach an Old Testament class. And I think, I think it gets to this question. And I've, uh, to, to, to remember it, it's A, B, C, D, though I go backwards, D, C, B, A. Uh, and so D stands for the doctrine of God. And so when I come to scripture, I, I really think that God is real and that God is speaking uh, through scripture and has something to say in the address of scripture. So um, it's not just a, a literary character or a literary investigation, but something real is happening in, in the text and beyond the text. So that's D. Uh, C is, uh, stands for the importance of the canon or the canonical criterion, that, that what is in the canon of scripture matters and has to be attended to, even those parts of scripture that we don't particularly like. Uh, all the more reason uh, that we need to pay attention to them. So the canonical criteria is C. B is uh, believers, as in the priesthood of all believers, and that uh, what scripture says is addressed to, to all believers, not just a select few. And then A stands for the authority of scripture. So I'm kind of backing my way into it, that therefore scripture is, is beca in, in, because of these things, authoritative uh, worth hearing, listening to, struggling with. So I think those DCBA, those four things, um, I, I sort of inform my my disposition towards scripture when I come to it. Hmm. I'm just surprised they're not, you know, letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, I think yeah. next, you know, that, that'd be good. That'd be yeah. good. <laughs> you have to change the C Friend, to G. I, I, yeah. I <laughs> yeah. love I love how clear and uh, and simply uh, you've articulated that. That's helpful. I'm sure people watching with us are going to be able to put that in their back pocket to pull out later. I use your four on whatever all the time. Ah, good. Probably, I should probably send you some money. Yeah, well, that'd be fine. Find your fee I mean, or, because. you know, just, because. Just, just put a little a little hit on Google Scholar or whatever. So, you know, the metrics go up. People, people in the schools <laughs> like these metrics now. You know. Okay, oh, fair oh enough. Uh, well, so uh, Brent, th again, thanks so much for, for joining us and thanks for um, giving us some, some of your kind of hermeneutical theological background. Um, that, that is really helpful. And I, I also really love the way that, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's an acronym. We can kind of remember those things a lot uh, yeah, uh, often. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also, um, last week we talked with uh, uh, Carol Newsom about uh, Job's friends. So just to back up, we started 
uh, this study of Job with the prologue, chapters one and two. We talked a little bit about uh, some of the ways that it, it functions kind of as a folktale, but a complex one with this uh, kind of hinging question of uh, does, does Job worship God for hinam, for nothing, for no reason, for no purpose, for no gain? But Job ends up worshiping God. We move into the dialogue and we get this much more complex, a bit like an explosion of ideas and, um, uh, and like an explosion of this folktale where you might expect that Job just keeps worshiping God in the midst of uh, losing everything. And that's what we're supposed to do. That's the message. But actually, when we slow down and have this wisdom dialogue, Job ends up complaining and getting pretty upset. Uh, and his friends are the ones who are quoting what we think of as Bible, um, quoting yeah. things like Deuteronomy, uh, quoting bits of Psalms, uh, or uh, kind of re referencing some of the theologies of Proverbs. Um, and Carol was helpful in unpacking that uh, Christians generally uh, come to the friends with a pre presupposition that they are evil and bad because God says they're bad in the end, right? Uh, but but Carol helped us to slow down and and uh, to really take seriously the friends' arguments. Um, first of all, because we don't want to throw them out, they're they're, they're actually relying on biblical uh, information and biblical points of view and and, and claims. Um, but also helping us think in terms of the dialogue uh, that these are points of view that are helpful sometimes, but also not helpful sometimes. Um, and particularly the friends' ways of trying to uh, look at Job's trauma and to try to narrate it, uh, to put it into a narrative, which is sometimes helpful, but sometimes not. Uh, but then also uh, talking to Job about his piety, right? Trying to get, you know, Job, you should pray, right? You should pray to God and everything will turn out fine. And then also thinking about like, our limitations. Job, you don't know. You don't know the truth about God. You don't know everything, so don't claim to know everything. You probably did sin at some point. You don't know, right? Um, and those things together kind of function as the friend's claims. Yeah, we, uh, we're, we're turning now to Job himself, and especially in the first, um, the first uh, kind of round of the dialogues. Um, but uh, what we kind of, I think, need to do now is really think about what is Job saying in particular that's different than the friends? I don't know if either of you have kind of a, uh, contextualizing things to talk about before we jump into some texts, but what do you take of Job's uh, speech altogether? And, and Carol talked a little bit about Job 3, but that might be something to bring into the conversation too. What happens when Job speaks mm -hmm. after chapter 2? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, Carol's uh, obviously one of the world authorities on on Job, and, and I've learned a lot from her work and, and her kind of concern with rehabilitating the friends in some ways uh, is really helpful. Um, recently, for me in thinking about Job and some other, what other work I've done on Job, and Carol might do this in some of her work as well, I didn't double check, um, is to think about, you know, the, the, the grand sweep of the book, which is hard to kind of hold in our heads because so much is going on, and, and especially in the in the wisdom dialogue where they're where they're so deep in the weeds and in the arguments and and then sometimes not just addressing each other but talking past each other at the end um but then also the god speeches right and then the end as you say where where god definitively weighs in and um in in my own thinking about what's going on with job's discourse and it's uh aptness or or rightness uh and the friend's discourse and its inaptness or ineptitude and its non-rightness. You know, the, the key text is, is at the end in the epilogue in 42, 7 to 8, where God says, you haven't spoken of me what is, what is right. Um, and of course, as I'm sure you already have talked about, all, all these, every word practically is, is up for discussion in, in these poems. Um, 
and this even in this prose text, this is the the prose uh, epilogue. But I was recently struck with uh, this re this uh, interpretation by Manfred Emming, um, and I I think it's got a lot to say for it. And it's actually was existed before him, but he sort of laid it out most recently that when God says, you haven't spoken of me what is right, I'm looking at my NRSV here, uh, as my servant Job has in 42, 7 to 8, uh, 7 to 8 it's re repeated twice, um, that, that what, uh, what's going on in that little word of, of me is actually, I mean, says it's to me. You haven't spoken to me. Yeah. rightly or correctly and uh i mean just makes this simple observation that you know no one speaks to god directly in job except for job all the friends talk about god but only mm. job talks to god and maybe that helps understand in some way what the rightness and wrongness is that's going on maybe the friends mm. aren't all wrong in their content right but rather in their practice uh they're theologians but not actually prayers and even though they say pray, they don't do it. And yeah. Job actually does pray, even if it's this bitter, vitriolic prayer. So mm -hmm. uh, just to throw that out to kind of get it going, yeah. but, but that's kind of yeah. what comes to mind in terms of thinking about that whole sweep of the book, which is, again, hard to kind of hold in the head, but maybe that's... Yeah. And I think when a lot of people come to Job, they're looking for the, an the answer to a simple question, which is why do bad things happen, especially to good people? Um, and we're sometimes taught that's how we're supposed to read Job. And we're also taught that Job is patient and maybe that's what you're supposed to do or whatever. But I think what surprises people is if they, if they actually read pretty carefully after chapter two, uh, which most of us don't. Um, but, you know, if you actually read, read carefully, you see that Job um, is, is angry, uh, really angry at God. Uh, and this tends to surprise people. Um, and uh, you know, partly the, the idea that, that Job speaks rightly because Job speaks to God angry or not. And that reminds me of an article that you had once, uh, Brent, that was really instructive to me and actually might help us to think too about some of, the, um, some of what we're seeing in our world today. And uh, that's about imprecatory psalms and, and gangster rap. Do you remember this article? Yeah. Um, so I remember it. You're good, good. I mean, you know, every once in a while I actually write something that I don't, I actually don't remember much of the details of it later and I don't like it. I don't want to be asked about it, right? But in any event, um, uh, but so uh, just to say, Job, Job's uh, the, the kind of genres or types of speech that the friends rely on are like these wisdom uh, stories, these narratives, things work out in the end, things don't work, things work out in the end for good people, things don't work in the end, in the end for bad people, or you should pray, right? These are kind of stories that they're telling themselves, um, or kind of wisdom sayings, uh, like Proverbs, like, who knows what's going on in God's, God's mind? We right. don't, so just pray. Um, but Job's tends to rely on different types of speech. Uh, and as you point out, this discourse to God, and that's, we usually call that prayer, right? Um, right, and, right. Uh, most Christians, I think, think that prayer is mostly about saying what God wants to hear, which is that God is awesome and great and wonderful, and we're, we're just terrible, sorry people, right? But, <laughs> but what, is, what is this? I mean, you know, Job, Job is relying on you, his you own two are the ones that You two are the ones affiliated with Presbyterian institutions. I mean, that, that's what, that's what <laughs> yeah. happens there, that Presbyterian. I, I mean, I'm, okay. I'm a Methodist. I don't have quite the same thing. Okay. So. Well, so, so, <laughs> so help, help, help us out with um, this, this, this very biblical uh, uh, form yeah. of speech, which might shock some of our sensibilities today. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, reading Job and what Job says, and then the commendation of Job at the end is, is a stunning thing. And it's a, it is a canonical warrant, um, I think, to, that also, as you say, justifies the kind of pain-filled speech of the Psalms. 
which is familiar from the laments, but it's then ramped up, especially high in these in these cases of imprecation, where the or like um, cursing, the yeah, psalmist, the cursing they just curse their enemies. Um, but here, the curse in Job is is really addressed almost to God, right? I mean, it's just it, it's got to be borderline blasphemy according to most people's standards and, and antique antiquities standards as well. And so that's what's so stunning about God's com commendation of Job's speech. And it, and it raises the question, how much does that kind of speech, you know, warranted, validated, valorized by God, you know, God's own self validate that? Or, or is it, again, not just the content, but the delivery and, and, and the orientation. The imprecation psalms to me are so stunning because not only that they capture all this wrath that we feel and violence we feel towards our enemies, and not only do they utter them, uh, but they also utter them directly, not to our enemies, uh, but to God. Um, and somehow that process, I think, is therapeutic that because the, the as, as my own professor, Pat Miller, used to say this this allows the the violence and and anger we feel to be let let go we don't we're not repressing it holding it in but we also at the same time are holding it back in the sense that we're containing it so that it doesn't break out in violence against our neighbor and their bodies but is somehow oriented to god who who takes up this anger and pain and absorbs it and i think in job what's intriguing about that is that God really does take it on the chin from Job and doesn't really address him in the same way back. Uh, God's response might be overwhelming in the theophany. I mean, that's a, that's a whole other story, right, <clears throat> that we could get into. But, but he doesn't, God doesn't in Job go after Job per se in the, in the theophanies. He, he, he doesn't take him down piece by piece like, like God has taken I mean, like Job's taking God down, you know, you're unjust, you, you're, you know, you won't even let me catch my breath. I can't even swallow my spit. I don't believe you'd even listen to me. Yeah. God does kind of something else. And, and again, that sort of, I think, validates or, or sort of says, yeah, I can, I can take that. And let me just redirect it a little bit over here, you know? Mm. Um, so I do think that that, that validation in 42 is is a narrative foundation that we don't get from the psalms we don't ever we don't ever hear god saying the psalms yes what you said is just is right you yeah. know uh, but we do in job and of course yeah. there's a lot of relationship of job's own discourse as you already said in these these this deep laments and grief of the psalms yeah can i can, can i jump in and ask a question um based on your the d the first in your theology of scripture the doctrine of god and I wonder if you could just reflect, and you've done so already a little bit, but how does God come out in the speeches of Job? Like, how does Job imagine God? And I think that it's important to sort of dwell on this because it, 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 it is so other than maybe the view that we see of God in the, in the Psalms or of De in Deuteronomy. And so um, what are some of those, in your mind, Brent, some of the characteristics of the doctrine of God that, that Job as he speaks sort of is is putting forward um yeah you know what i mean it's it, it, it probably carol talked about this probably last week and it'll continue to occupy your your study i suppose but I, last night i was reading uh, michael fox's little essay his presidential address to the society of biblical literature i guess two years ago called and it's called the meanings of the book of Job. 
And I, I thought it was a really nice articulation of um, of Job from one of the an, another one of the world's authorities. Uh, and, and can I just interrupt briefly to say this is also part of our syllabus, in fact, uh, for for next week, which is prescient. This is excellent. So uh, if you sign up for uh, the office hours um, uh, thing, it's free, of course. Just sign up. Uh, you sign an email or uh, the check of the the comments below. Um, but anyway, you can get access to this article that Brent is talking about. So Brent, uh, meetings of Job. Wonderful. Yeah. And, and, and prescient is, I always like to be associated with that word, so appreciate that. I, I you know, <laughs> it doesn't Precious happen very often. Precious. <laughs> Precious and prescient. Yes. So anyway, he, he has this line, in fact, it struck out and I underlined it. I'll just read it because I think this gets to Chris's question. In the dialogue, Job's view of God is fractured. To Job, God is, on the one hand, unremittingly hostile and unfair. On the other, the final source of hope and justice. You know, and I thought, yeah, you know, that's a very well said in one sentence, these sort of two aspects and there's and there's more. But it, but if we can kind of put them on a, in a dyad, on the one hand, hostile, unfair, on the other hand, final source of hope and justice. And Job is just struggling between those two things, which I think, of course, is where human beings always struggle between those two things. And. To me, that is in part related to the form of the book. So we, we have the narrative, uh, prose, you know, a prologue and an epilogue, but in between is all this poetry. And I think it's important to distinguish narrative in terms of form and narrative in terms of phenomenology. Uh, and so, you know, when, when I think Carol says that the friends are narrating him into something, that's a phenomenological narrative. It's not actually a narrative. Yeah. You know, the narrative, there's no narrative there. There's a poem there, right? And, and so that poem may evoke a narrative, but in its form, the poetry is not narratival. And maybe because of that is unsuccessful in narrating him back completely. Um, and he then lives within this kind of fractured bipolar sense of who God is, I think. Um, and so, that's that's a powerful testimony. The question I have, as a, as a theologian in the doctrine of God, is is how you know, how accurate is Job's experience of God, or or to say how what is the role said differently? What is the role of experience in our understanding and doctrine of God? How powerful is it? Mm -hmm. I think for Job, his experience is super powerful, right? I mean, that's why he describes it early on in chapter six that we were looking at for today. If all my calamity was weighed, it would be heavier than the sand of the sea, 6-3, you know? Um, mm -hmm. That's how it feels to Job, but that's probably a bit overstated, <laughs> you know, right? right? I mean, my own pain, and I haven't had pain like Job, so let me be clear about that, <laughs> you know, in, in terms of pain is overwhelming to the to the self who feels the pain it's colossal it cannot be yeah. it cannot be measured but the book of job as it goes on i think says there's more to the cosmos than just job's pain um it's 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 overwhelming to him it overwhelms the friends you know as he says i think it's really a remarkable line you're afraid of my pain yeah. right mm -hmm. i mean that's a stunning statement we are afraid of people's pain it, because it threatens to overwhelm them. It threatens to overwhelm us. We want to fix it. We can't do it. We don't know what, you know, but it, it, it's this overwhelming experience. But Job also, I think, as a book, somehow 
contains that um, pain yeah. to say that it is so important, but maybe it's not everything. It's almost everything, but maybe it's not everything. And the fact that it's maybe not almost everything is that Job keeps coming back to God as the final source of, of hope and comfort. Yeah. And it, I really, yeah, it I re- like, oh, really appreciate that reminder about, about Job's statement, you are afraid of my pain. And I think uh, in many ways, you know, if, we, if we're reading the media, if we're looking at Facebook, if we're looking at social, uh, at social media, um, this, this, this could be uh, sort of a, a tagline for, for the Black Lives Matter protests of mm-hmm. saying, you're yeah. afraid of my pain. Right. Um, you yeah. you want to put it in a neat box. You want to narrate it. You want to you want to say that there's justice and rightness and that there's a way forward. But I need you to sit with my pain um, okay. and 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 make room for a fractured relationship. Um, and 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 that that was something that I we shared a, a chapter from Carol Newsom's book again for for the prep work for today. And um, the way that she she talks about. The friends want to, as you said, create this narrative where things are in the end. And, and Job is sort of like, no, look at my experience. Be with me here. Right. Uh, and I just, I just find that I just resonate with that so much right now with what's going on in our, in our country and in our world. Um, yeah. that, you, know, you, that, you, you, could see, you could see Job, right, in this light as a, as a crisis in pastoral care. You know what I mean? The friends, yeah. the friends show up. At, at their, they don't, at first they don't even recognize him, right? They can't recognize him. So, so racked with pain and grief is, is what the prologue says. And they just sit there for a week and nobody says anything, right? And then someone finally speaks and it's Job. And he says that uh, stunning, you know, cursing of the day he was born uh, in Job 3. Um, and then the friends, you know, they just can't help themselves. They just have to tweet something back, you know, and say, they just tweet it back and let's get into it. And they get into it and they argue about it for, you know, 30 some chapters. Um, but Job also says in the material that was on the docket for today, you know, silence would have been your wisdom, you know. Uh, and so that their first disposition towards him is to just sit there and not know what to say. That was right. Once they get into it, it's like getting into a, a theological debate in the ICU, right? Or or in the morgue, in in, in you know it, it, at the morgue where the where the where the grieved has just come to identify the bodies. You know, well let's let's have a little conversation here about the problem of evil. You know, that, that, it's not the right time. You know, it's not the right, right time. You might have to have that conversation at some point, but not for a while, right? And so this crisis of pastoral care is quite significant. And, you know, what happens is Job says all kinds of stuff and it's sort of validated, right? He spoke rightly of me or spoke rightly to me. And yet he also speaks stuff that we know isn't right because he says, I don't believe God would listen to me. I don't believe he would kind of show up when God shows up, God listens to him, right? So there's this sort of crisis of pastoral care. Who can kind of comfort Job in the end? No one can comfort Job except God, and even God doesn't comfort him in quite the way he wants. Um, he, mm-hmm. God doesn't give Job a, a specific answer, and I think people like Fox and others are right, because if God gave a specific answer to Job's problem, it wouldn't be a book or, or, or an answer anymore for, for everybody else, because not everybody suffers like Job or exactly like Job, right? And so God speaks more generally and differently and not, not on point to Job's own suffering. 
Because again, at that point, it would be a book just about the answer to Job. And the book's about more than that. And yet God does show up, God restores, and that restoration happens through these friends. The friends are restored thanks to Job, right? And, and his prayer for them at the end. And then his friends and family come back and they give him a little money and they, you know, they help him out, you know? And so there's, yeah. there's this crisis of pastoral care that this, it starts off pretty good, just listening to Job. Then it goes off the rails uh, with the constant back and forth between the friends. And then, and then it, 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 it resolves in some ways and it resolves because of, of God, Job's self-consolation with God there at the end in 42. And then, and then his restoration with his friends and his family. It's a kind of a stunning thing. But I think what you said, Chris, is exactly right. That pain that, that our society feels right now, it threatens to overwhelm people and, and people who they can't handle it. And some people, you know, want to want to put it down, right? They want to deny that pain. And what Job and the Psalms say is there is no new life via cover-up and denial. Uh, there's no new life via cover-up and denial. There's only new life when there's loud, brash, oftentimes violent lament uh, expressed to God. Yeah. Yeah. With the pastoral care moment, sorry, Brendan, I promise yeah. I will probably talk again. Um, but, but the fractured relationship, and the, we talked a little bit about sort of CPE, the clinical pastoral education mm. last week with Carol. Yeah. And, and it strikes me that as caregivers in whatever form, whether people are watching who are pastors or who are, who are not pastors, who are just good friends, that, that often um, when we encounter people who have a fractured view of God um, and we find ourselves wanting to fix that, mm. I wonder if that has more to do with our own fear of our narratives breaking out our, you know, we're afraid of that pain. And so we need to repair it for other people, but not for their good, but almost for our own good to sort of like, man, mm -hmm. I couldn't, I couldn't possibly consider that God would be, be a hunter, you know, like a yeah. lion after yeah. people or that, yeah. or that God would be unjust or that God would, right. you know, all of these things. And so we, we rush right. to, to fix it. And if we stop for a moment and, and wonder, Am I fixing this for my friend? Is that my job to do, first of all? Mm -hmm. Or am I just afraid of what I'm hearing? Right. Um, and, and maybe that's an invitation, again, just sitting and listening um, and work, letting someone work through that mm -hmm. relationship rather than trying to offer a quick fix. Right. And, 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 with, and with tying back to your earlier question about, you know, what, is, what does Job say about the doctrine of God? I mean, if Job might my, 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 my see the canonical criterion, if, if Job is an important witness to that doctrine of God, which the book is, also it's, it's constituent parts, right? I have to reckon seriously with the sainthood of Job, right? right? That, that Job knows something about God, something that I don't know. And part of what he knows is caused and brought about by his suffering. Um, in theory... I might not like that in terms of a, you know, a, a very neat and tidy systematic doctrine of God, but at the experiential level, the dude is on point, yeah. right? I mean, he is on point. Even if we want to say in theory, oh, God is not unjust and unfair, that is how we often experience God. Facts, end of story, that too is part of the doctrine of God. Experience and how the human being and the non-human world too experiences God is part of the doctrine of God and, and has to be, I think, thought through as such. Um, 
at the same time, again, the experience of, of any one of us um, can't be fully confused with the doctrine of God, you know? And I think that's what the whirlwind perspective, the cosmos perspective is in, in, the, uh, in the God speeches. Um, I think that at some points, therefore, even as a, as a Wesleyan Arminian Methodist, I have to concede that John Calvin got a few things right about some of that understanding of God. Uh, uh, so anyway, but, but yeah, yeah. I, I think what you're saying is right on, Chris. Yeah, it strikes me that like the kind of um, one of the big lessons of wisdom literature is uh, that there's no disembodied knowledge. Um, all knowledge is is timely, and what wisdom is the ability to use knowledge at the appropriate time. I mean, I, the, one of the great examples is uh, Proverbs twenty six four and five, and, uh, yeah. which say the exact opposite thing. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, don't answer a fool according to their folly, or you'll become a fool. And then the next verse, answer a fool according to their folly, or what else would they, how will they not learn if you don't teach them, right? Um, and which, which right. both of those are kind of like good, that's good advice, but it depends on who you are and who the person is, and what the setting is for you to apply it or, you know, use it in some way. Um, and it seems like wisdom is all about the difference between those two things. So the friends aren't wrong in what they say, but it just doesn't apply at all to Job because they haven't taken the time to yeah. actually look at him and his situation, listen to him. And also they haven't taken the time to, to, to uh, look at God and, you know, to talk to God. Um, it's, and it strikes me too that like lament, you know, uh, one of the things I love about Walter Brueggemann's work is that lament, you know, kind of gives full voice to that feeling of abandonment from God, isolation from God, that God is trying to hurt us in some way, that God is punish, punishing us often unjustly, right? The lament Psalms, most of them, actually the vast majority of them don't say, I'm sorry, I, I did wrong. You know, most of them to tell right. God, hey, stop doing this. This isn't right. You know, right. Um, right. And, and just to, to get us to, to realize that, um, you know, when Jesus speaks on the cross, one of the things Jesus says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me or abandoned me? You know, it's really a condemnation mm -hmm. taken from Psalm yeah. 22. Um, and right. it, it makes us uncomfortable a bit. Um, and one of the things of kind of plotting Christian narrative, uh, like, you know, the, the using narrative, as you say, uh, to kind of yeah. like run over or smooth over things like we, well, Jesus got resurrected and it was all fine after that and everything's great. But, right. but that right. moment still exists of the rupture yeah. of Jesus naming the experience of abandonment uh, that doesn't undo like the, the, the hands, you know, Jesus's hands that are, they're still marked with the marks of the crucifixion. That doesn't go right. away. It's not undone just because there's a happy ending. Um, and so right. it, it, that's a real true thing uh, that Job experiences. I, I really appreciate you saying that that it's not it doesn't it's not uh, erased from the doctrine of god just because it turns out that uh, god was nice to job in the end right i mean i mean the like you said oh by, by the way though i going back to text criticism i've looked into that proverbs 26 text and it, mm -hmm. in the original manuscripts it says answer a facebook fool according <laughs> to his book mm -hmm. it's actually mm -hmm. yes i'm uh, about to publish that so everybody's watching don't don't scoop i won't me steal it yeah actually, there, there's a variant, a, a Twitter fool. Answer Twitter fool. Mm -hmm. Don't answer Twitter fool. You know. Anyway. No, I don't know but what Snapchat that, is. So let's not go there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, but that, yeah, the, but wisdom's predicated on experience, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you're you're an expert in all this, um, Brendan, uh, and and so it works in probability theory, you know. And so you know, if you do this, most of the time this will happen. You know, you, you live a righteous, good life. Most of the time, it's going to work out. But you know. There's always exceptions to the rule. That's that also is experience. You know, there's there's a 
four out of five dentists, you know, recommend Crest, but there's always that one damn dentist who doesn't recommend Crest, right? <laughs> What's why? up with what? that? You know, yeah. why? Right? You know, because that dentist isn't on Crest payroll. That's why, <laughs> right? And, and so, so Job isn't on God's payroll anymore, huh? Job, <laughs> that's right. He nom for it, nothing. That's right. For no, for no reason, so, no cause. So that suffering is is real it's an experience and job is kind of uh, you know to use language from ecclesiastes kind of the fly that spoils the the ointment um yeah but that too is a part of experience has to be reckoned with so here in the prologue the guy does everything right he's blameless he even sacrifices for his kids when he's not sure they sin just to be yeah. safe and yeah. it doesn't all go right it goes horribly wrong and he knows it god knows it the satan knows it the only ones who don't know it are the friends um, mm -hmm. right uh, but they're they're shown to be be wrong at the end. So that suffering is is so crucial as a criterion of experience that just cannot be gainsaid. Um, it just is, and, and it's and it, if the friends teach us nothing else, they show us how difficult it is, maybe impossible it is to to enter into someone else's experience of suffering, mm -hmm. um, and therefore to be cavalier about it. Uh, that God is doing X, Y, or Z in somebody's suffering uh, is just not not wisdom, right? It's yeah. not wisdom. And it seems like those experiential um, elements come up immediately in Job's speech. I mean, in, in chapter three as well, where he's talking about his yeah. experience, uh, which kind of undoes creation in a way. Um, but in chapter six, um, uh, you know, when Job talks about his his experience being weighed, his experience of this calamity being weighed and the, the friends would be so surprised by the outcome of that. Like, you know, yeah. if you actually took me seriously, right? Uh, as we said, hyperbole, but uh, verse four, for the arrows of the almighty are in me. That's that kind of God is committing violence against me. And if you just would wait for a second and take a you know, look at it. Um, but then also this stuff about taste, which I think is really important. Uh, Joe brings this up a lot in his uh, speeches, especially in chapter six, but in six, chapter six, verse five, does the wild ass bray over its grass, the ox low over its fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any flavor in the juice of mallows, um, like marshmallows, I guess? Um, <laughs> the uh, the uh, a kind of fruit of, uh, uh, or the in innards of, uh, of, of a plant uh, from that time and place. Um, my appetite refuses to touch them, these kind of tasteless foods. They are like food that is loathsome to me. And then he kind of ends up uh, at the uh, end of chapter six, verse 30, saying, is there any wrong on my tongue? Cannot my taste discern calamity? And so he's saying like, you know, what, what you're trying to feed me, you know, the friends are trying to defend God, say, look, Job, what you're saying is uh, kind of doesn't work with my theology. So I'll, I'll defend God because God's not here, right? So um, uh, why, why, don't, why don't we play that game? And Job says, no, it's, this is about my taste, right? These, those, those old arguments don't actually taste well to me right now. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I love that he uses that metaphor of taste, right? Yeah. That like, because I can't tell you, no, the cake tastes good. I have to say it tastes good to me, or most people think it tastes good, but what about you? I mean, you can always say, no, I just don't like cilantro, right? Mm, um, but, mm. but here, I, and I, I get that sense too, that like that, that rejection um, based on kind of personal experience, um, that, that seems to be kind of the, the, the crux of what Job is saying here, trying to upset the friend's kind of steamrolling theology, as it were. Um, but yeah. it, it seems to me too uh, that... Uh, Job is trying to kind of undo some other parts of the friend's um, kind of narrative uh, uh, theology, as it were, attempts to narrativize Job's life and so on um, uh, in, uh, in chapter six. 
I love that he makes fun of like the friends themselves. Like, you all are bad friends, as you pointed out, Brent, in chapter six, um, verses 14 and on. Uh, those who yes. withhold kindness from a friend forsake the fear of the Almighty. You're, 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 you don't believe in God if you forsake your friend. I mean, even if right. that means you attack God, right? This is amazing stuff. Right, right. Like, but in chapter seven, he kind of switches and he starts to talk to God. And I was wondering, what do we, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about Job's anger and so on, but what do we see in chapter seven, especially with this kind of pivot to God? Um, uh, what, what, are, what are the hallmarks of Job's argument here, you think? And how would the friends maybe have understood that? Well, I think what, what Job continues to point out to God and, and he, he, he shifts towards God, I think, as I read it the first time, maybe clearly in, in, in verse seven of, of chapter seven, um, and then goes on from there. It's clear in verse 12 when he asks God, am I the sea or a dragon that you set a guard over me? Um, and then in the, in the other sections here in the first um, cycle, when Job responds, you know, he's talking to his friends sometimes, that's the you, and then switches to a you that's directed to God. So he's, he's kind of got two interlocutors, the friends on one hand and the deity on the other one, and he mm -hmm. kind of seamlessly moves back and forth. But as I, what struck me this time in reading through the first cycle and his responses were how he constantly plays the, you know, what Kierkegaard called the infinite qualitative difference between himself and God. Uh, God is this big, massive entity who really shouldn't be overly concerned with him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he says, I'm not your problem. You know, <laughs> you've got yeah. big problems. You got things like the sea and the dragons to maintain. You know, I, I'm just this little guy. Even if I sin, who cares, right? What does it matter to you? You know, you're, you're, you're infinite. I'm just this, you know, day laborer. I, I, I don't even have the same kind of hope a tree has. I mean, trees get cut down. They can, they can sprout again. This is my only shot, you know? Um, so I think it's this, this infinite God for Job is not something praiseworthy, right? But, but, but oppressive. Um, yeah. That God's infiniteness that would, that, that the friends would no doubt laud, as the good theologians that they are, Job thinks is just, this means that God should leave me alone, you know? Um, yeah. It, it, that that sea and dragon. Yeah. That comes yeah, back. Yeah, go right? ahead. No, I was going to say that. That sea and dragon That's comes right. back. And this, uh, you've done a lot of work on uh, iconographies that include lions, but also dragons and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about yeah. sea and dragon? Why would Job talk about seas and dragons? And why would also God come back and talk about seas and dragons? And those are big parts of God's speeches too. Yeah, well, they, they're capital capital S and capital D in the in the N, NRSV, which of course is probably right, probably given by direct inspiration from from, from the NRSV. So, Pat Miller, yeah, <laughs> yeah, from Pat Miller and, and others, right? So uh, they are mythological kind of tropes or or figures or or beings. The sea, which is uh, even in some Levantine religions, a deity. Uh, chaos of uh, a chaotic kind of deity and the dragon that's the, the sea monster leviathan that kind of goes along with that and so um job says i'm not these kinds of big threats to you that god has to kind of control which god does in various psalms like psalm 74 um, 
you know, I, I'm not that kind of target. I'm just this little, little, tiny, tiny ant. Um, yeah. And what God does in this Job's in this in the God speeches at the end of the book is is he's kind of point these things out and um, actually talk about how much God is fond of them. They're not his enemies after all. They're like little playthings, you know. I kind of made them and and I really like them. And I made them. He says like you. Um, so there's something remarkably tremendous, awe-inspiring, even about little tiny Job, you know, uh, that he's like. And Job kind of gets at that in chapter 7 too, that verse 17, what are human beings that you make so much of them that you set your mind on them, visit them every morning, test them every moment? And it's interesting that some people have pointed out that this is uh, in some way a parody, perhaps, or at least a, uh, it seems to us reading it like it's a parody of Psalm 8, you know, yeah. what is a human that you are so mindful of them? Like, you know, yeah. you've made us a little lower than angels. How amazing. We're yeah. so great. You know, like yeah. we're these little things, but we're awesome because you care about us. And Job says, why right. do you care about us? Because now you're yeah. like hounding me for maybe a little sin or maybe not even, I don't yeah. know. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah, that kind of use of, of scripture as kind of parody. Job seems to do mm -hmm. that a few times in a few different ways. What do you all think about Job's use of Psalms in, you know, he's, he's kind of mocking almost Psalm 8. Yeah, Christian weigh in on this because you do get like the intertestamental stuff with that yeah. that New Testament stuff, and 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 it's it's often reused. So, what do you think, Chris? Yeah, I mean, so it's funny in the the chat on Facebook, uh, somebody quoted um, when we were talking about tasting uh, Psalm thirty four, taste and see that the Lord is good, mm. and all of this. I wonder, Brennan, if all of this language about taste in Job is actually in a uh, 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 subverting that and is saying, mm -hmm. I've tasted. And it's not good. Like, the, <laughs> it actually, my, my experience has suggested, yes, I've experienced God, and it is actually not right. Or, or what we see in, 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 in Job 7, this play with Psalm 8, and later um, in another speech of Job, there seems to be another play with one, Psalm 139. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's one of those places where I often teach, you know, sort of a very basic introduction class to the, uh, to, of the Bible and biblical interpretation to uh, local pastors in the United Methodist Church. And this whole idea that, that you can't argue with Scripture because of the authority of Scripture, Brent, is, is consistent. And yet Scripture itself at least contains these arguments. Paul argues with Scripture. Um, his, whole, his whole view in Galatians that, uh, that Deuteronomy is really clear, that anybody who hangs on a tree is cursed. And yet he's going to reread that and say, somehow Jesus, who hung on a tree, is is not cursed, but is actually has been exalted to the right hand of God. Mm -hmm. And so if I, if Job is parodying or even subverting the Psalms and the perspective of the Psalms, I think, wow, what, how would that open up our understanding of what we do as interpreters of scripture to leave room for some argument and to say, we're Job, Job at least authenticates this, at least gives yeah, us the yeah. option to it. Um, yeah, and yeah. then we can wrestle with, okay, what are we doing? Um, and, and how are we doing it? And my last thought about that would be, mm -hmm. you know, even my students who think it, it is completely, you know, impious to argue with scripture, I would sort of say, well, you, you do argue with scripture as soon as you go to another part of scripture to interpret yeah. what is difficult in the text. As <laughs> yeah. soon as you say, oh, you know, Romans 8.28, let's just all, you know, God works out all things good for those who love him. Let's just go there. As soon as you 
sort of are pulling in another text to um, get a get one text that maybe makes you uncomfortable off the hook. I, I, I think you're you're arguing with scripture, and so maybe maybe in this question of the authority of scripture, Job opens us up to. Again, maybe it's a much more authentic and open engagement with Scripture and the God who is revealed through Scripture, mm-hmm. rather than fearing that we, we couldn't possibly have a, a negative reaction to anything that we find in Scripture. Yeah, no, I like I like that a lot. It, it in that sense, Job is kind of a microcosm of the entire Bible, right? With these different voices talking around who God is and what the nature of the world is and suffering and all the rest. And in, in Carol Newsom's work, that's kind of talked about in terms of the dialogical nature of truth, right? That, mm-hmm. that truth is not gotten at by just a, a single monological voice. And uh, I suspect that's how a lot of people think about scripture is this kind of one voice or whatever. And when you get into the weeds, it's got all these different voices and here's Psalm 8, but then there's Job 7 seeming to maybe offer a different take. Um, for me, I've, I've thought, for a while to go back to that Proverbs 26 text that maybe what scripture then is offering us is uh, rather something more like a toolbox, right? Of, of options, of, of, of perspectives mm-hmm. uh, uh, that have proven in the course of human history through the, the life of faith and the community of faith useful at different times. Um, and therefore we might like this one, we might really dislike that one, but our own yeah. personal predilections don't matter a whole lot because the larger testimony of scripture and the community of faith is that all of the ones, even the ones I don't like, have proven useful at some point. And to quote a line from Walter Brueggemann, it's just hard to get God said right. You know, mm-hmm. It's hard to get God said right. And things that matter that are really important and profound, you can't really capture in a pithy statement. I mean, I know we say things like God is good all the time, all the time God is good. It captures something, right? It's, it's, it says something true and right. And also God is love. But there's also other things that need to be said, right? If you can say everything you need to say about the infinite God in one sentence, you're probably not talking about the infinite God anymore, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so um, to me, the Bible functions as a kind of toolbox or, or to use a different metaphor, a kind of lexicon. It's, it's a kind of language. And in our own language, we're fully comfortable with the fact that we have, uh, you know, uh, words that are, uh, and then other words that are synonyms to those, also words that are antonyms to those. Um, and it's really no problem that one word means the opposite of another word, because it just depends on what sentence you're using, right? Mm-hmm. What, what, what kind of meaning you need to make. Um, and so what's hard for readers, I think uh, both sophisticated ones and, and, and more, and more uh, novice ones, is to not treat the scripture as if uh, it just says one thing, or that we can reconcile it in one way, uh, you know, left or right or what it, or in the middle, um, but that there's these sort of, mm, these kind of voices, well, maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe not, you know, uh, maybe, maybe, you know, that's, that's one of the ultimate significant points about Job and Ecclesiastes, these sort of counter voices that say, well, maybe not all the time God is good, or at least we don't experience God as, as good all the time. Yeah. And those voices. I, li- I like the metaphor, yeah. the metaphor, the toolbox, could, because it, I mean, on my best days as somebody who loves to teach scripture and, and invite people into a deeper engagement with it, um, my, my hope is that, that I, I, I realize that people come to my class with their favorites, you know, mm-hmm. and as a New Testament professor, the favorites are usually the Gospel of John and Romans, and, and maybe something else. Um, but usually those are the favorites. And 
you know, it's the, the, the metaphor helps me sort of give voice to, you know, if you come at everything with a hammer, um, uh, you're only going to be successful um, a part, part of the time. But if, yeah. if you're able to use all of scripture and you're able to, to know what each book of scripture might offer you at a different mm -hmm. season of life, mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that's, really, that, that's really, I think, what, what we as scripture scholars are trying to do is to say, okay, here, here's, what, here's what the imprecatory Psalms offer us. Um, right. uh, here's what the gospel of Mark gives us, a crazy Jesus who can't be controlled. Um, you know, and, and can, we, can we then move around in the canon in a way that we use all of these tools? Yeah, yeah and that, that voice of, um, like, you know, Job and Ecclesiastes, these, uh, especially Job in the book of Job, these voices of, like, disruption that often unsettle us, but that are so important for pointing out kind of the blind spots or the, the places what, that we can't see and understand about our own stories or theologies. I mean, just to kind of bring it to today, I mean, thinking about how um, the Black Lives Matter movement is in many ways disruptive. I mean, last night, so yesterday, um, uh, Rayshard Brooks is a man who was, um, uh, he was killed last night, uh, yet, well, yesterday, uh, um, uh, by the Atlanta police. Um, he was shot dead in a parking lot um, of, a, of a Wendy's. Uh, he was asleep in his car. And uh, the, the, the kind of overflowing feeling in Atlanta right now is anger, being upset, and uh, confusion about this even. Um, but also, this, it kind of erupted and overflowed onto the highway, actually disrupted uh, like 14 uh, uh, you know, lanes of traffic on the highway were, were stopped by protesters last night. And that moment of disruption is um, important. I think even the phrase Black Lives Matter is disruptive and, and you know, it shouldn't be, but it is disruptive to kind of typical American stories, what all lives matter and so on. Like that, that uh, lifting up of, a dis, uh, of, of something that America likes to kind of forget about or try to push down. You know, we're all like the American dream is open to everyone, et cetera. And bringing up this idea that um, it's actually maybe not, like to, especially to certain people, right? For certain people, that story isn't true. That generative narrative isn't true. That that experience is different. It tastes the, the America tastes different mm -hmm. to different people. Um, mm -hmm. But we can ignore that often, or like the friends try to defend America, try to defend mm -hmm. our systems, try to defend or I, me or myself. You know, I didn't do this. I'm not a part of it, etc. But it really is important to kind of linger with the disruption and figure out why is this unsettling to me, I think, at least, and to ask kind of questions. Tell me more about that, right? Let me learn more about that, especially as a white American. That's something I should be doing all the time. But um, it, it, it seems to me that like that um, voice of disruption uh, moves, it kind of progresses through Job's discourse. And it, it moves away a bit from just purely him talking about his experiences and his kind of anger at God into the actual realm of justice. And this is something that I thought was really interesting. Like Black Lives Matter as something that points out an injustice that's easy to overlook or to tell away with a larger narrative about generally America's good, et cetera. Um, the chapter nine, there's this shift. It almost is like uh, uh, Job listens to Bildad in chapter eight, who said, you know, what is God, uh, chapter eight, verse three, does God pervert justice? He doesn't answer the question, obviously, no, right, to, to build that. But then Job in chapter 9 starts this whole other way of talking. Hey, wait, what if, what if God actually isn't just, right? It's almost like he takes that, like, kind of throwaway question and begins to say, you know, there, what if there is a justice bigger than justice, the justice system, mm -hmm. you know? And he starts to imagine, like, a courtroom, right? Um, what do y'all yeah. think about this kind of development of the, the kind of justice system metaphor in Job? 
Yeah, well, I, I think of it as, as related. I mean, it's, it's another way, another way he gets at his, has, at his issue. I mean, it, the, the friends don't seem to be buying, you know, the personal, uh, you know, taste. This is how it tastes to me differently. Well, how about this? How about I shift it to justice, which you seem to think is, is a part of God, part of the doctrine of God. And, and let me argue it that way. And of course, it culminates in his great uh, oath to take, to take the, the, the stand before God uh, later in the book. In chapter 31, um, yeah, right. That's right. So I think a lot of it has to do with that. And of course, this is where, where he gets close, as close as you could get, or maybe maybe crosses the line in, into to blasphemy, religious blasphemies. All one, he says in 922, therefore I say, God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. You know, when disaster brings sudden death, he mocks the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. I mean, this stuff is is in the Psalms to a degree, but this is even, even more, you know. And um, so... There, this is at the pole where God is unremittingly hostile and unfair. Um, yeah. Even though he thinks, he seems to think that if he could get his day in court, as he goes on to say, if I was there, I would articulate what I have to say, and God would listen, and I would be innocent, right? And so he's, right. he's really confident in that. So, I mean, I think it's a, it, it shifts again, it uses another metaphor to try to make sense of what he's experiencing and maybe his friends will kind of understand. What, what I've been thinking about throughout this whole conversation is how the, 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 the friends, you know, and he, he says this, uh, Job calls them, what did he call them in chapter 13? All of you whitewashed with lies. You are worthless doctors. I think the NRSV calls them quacks, you're quacks. Um, if only you would keep silent, that would be your wisdom. Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. You know, mm -hmm. it, it just doesn't work. And what, what, what I've been thinking about with, is that, you know, the friends are so quick to defend, right? They're so quick yeah. to defend God. They're afraid of this disruption that you pointed out, Brandon. They just can't handle it. They want to set everything straight, which is, you know, if we can psychoanalyze a little bit, it's because they're projecting, right? They can't, they can't handle this within their own self. So they project it out and they can handle it mm -hmm. through Job in some way. But um, they're the ones who talk incessantly about God, never to God. And so Bonhoeffer says in his book on creation and fall, you know, the first theologian in the Bible is the serpent, you know, who speaks about God, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. surely God didn't say, you know, and the friends just talk about God. They never speak to God, you know. And this is why we're biblical scholars, not theolog not systematic theologians, right? <laughs> that's right. Though, you yeah. know, but, 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 but I'm guilty of this all the time, too, of yeah, speaking no, about no, God yeah. as if I know <laughs> and not speaking enough to God. Job is this remarkable book about pastoral care, but maybe also about about spirituality, right? That hmm. that he because he 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 flows like like some of the great Christian writers like Anselm or whatever. They just kind of flow from talking about God suddenly into prayer, talking to God. Augustine does it in the Confessions, uh, Julian of Norwich, etc. There, there's something to be said about that. There's something useful about that. And in terms of the of this language analogy, for me, I think I, I'm struck with this comment by John McWhorter, who's my favorite <clears throat> linguist. Um, McWhorter says the goal of, of, of language is not logical consistency. You know, language is not math. The goal of language is not logical consistency. The goal of language is clarity. Um, that's why something like a double negative works in language and it doesn't work in, in math or it means something different in math. 
And I, I thought that as a stunning statement in, in thinking about with regard to scripture, what's going on in scripture then is not logical consistency right. that God is always this or always that, but rather clarity. And what is the clarity? Clarity is that at least in case of Job, we don't always experience God as one thing, you know, that God is not always something, you know, all the time, but, but a movable entity, a true subject, a, a free, a, you a, might say a, sovereign free, like Mark is Mark's Jesus or, or, or a God beyond even the text itself, uh, hmm. to which the text points, but is, is elusive and who might show up at the ash heap, just where you wanted to meet God and needed to meet God, but who might have a few things to say that have nothing to do with your particular ash heap. Yeah. The, and the, that, the, language, the language from Hebrews is the, the living God, uh, mm, that, mm. that it, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a reminder that, that the God who is revealed in scripture and is revealed in the lives around us is not one that is predictable uh, or controllable. Um, and, um, yeah, I, li I like that. Doesn't, isn't yeah. always consistent. Logically. And then God, and, and yet, and Job, you know, God is this overwhelming force that, you know, that Job doesn't like. And then, then when God finally shows up, God is in a sense, an overwhelming force, you know, and, and not a directive, a bit, bit elusive, you know, uh, I think it's, is it, uh, I forget the exact quote now, but it's from Rene Girard who says, you know, when, when God, when, when God finally shows up to talk to Joe, what Joe gets is like a two hour discourse on animals, you know, look at all, look at all the animals, Joe, you know, look, don't, yeah. don't look there. Look, look, look at that hippo over there. It's really, really yeah. remarkable. What about ostriches? Amazing. Yeah. And, you know, so, so God is this overwhelming cosmic perspective and it keeps drawing Job's attention to the cosmos and to the world. And yet that God if God is just that kind of God, God doesn't have to show up at an ash heap. Give me a break, right? He's got bigger yeah. things to do. But God does show up at that ash heap and then has words with his friends and then listens to his prayer and then restores the fortunes of Job. So there's that dyad again that Fox talks about, right? Unremittingly hostile and unfair, the final source of his hope and comfort yeah. and justice. You know, that... Yeah. that is the clarity. It's a dyad. It seems paradoxical, but that's the clarity offered, I think, by, by Job. A bit like the, uh, what Brueggemann says about the, uh, the uh, lament psalms, if you stick with them long enough faithfully, actually yelling right. at God, God might actually right. show up. And you, we see that yeah. turn to praise, a kind of unexplainable turn to praise in the lament, many of the lament psalms. Um, in a way, like you see in Job, uh, not, not terribly explainable either. But one thing to point out, I think uh, it's kind of important for the book, um, uh, the starting in chapter nine, we get this notion of like an umpire, um, uh, a mediator. Uh, the, the Job says, well, if I want to take God to court to sue God for breach of contract, basically, you know, you said you'd love me and take care of me and you, you attack me for no reason, which is kind of true. Um, well, and then, you know, I'm going to sue God. Um, and But in court, God's the judge and the jury and the accused. And that doesn't work for, you know, that, that's not fair, right? So Job is hoping for this other character, right? And Job kind of mentions this a few different times, a few different t uh, spaces, you know, kind of the cry actually seems to function as kind of a mediator in chapter 16. I wish my cry would advocate for me in court. Um, in chapter 19, we have that famous chapter 19, verse 25, the Redeemer, uh, uh, which uh, Christians, of course, point to that and say that this is, uh, you know, this is Jesus here, which I think we need to kind of 
stick with and think about. We'll, we'll maybe come back to that our last week when we talk about what's talk about how do Christians read the book of Job and think about it. Um, but just to say within the text, it seems to be that Job's hoping for this kind of, I don't know, some sort of force that, but he, he kind of doubts it too. What, what, what could this thing be that could mediate between me and God? But what do you all take about that language of the mediator or the umpire, um, the redeemer, the one who can like fight God on my behalf and, and fix things? I mean, my initial thought is, you know, I think I think Job comes to the conclusion, um, maybe, uh, that there that, that God has to be that advocate as well as you know at, at some level. I, I read the discourses as going in that direction of him saying, yeah. "You're the you, you know you're the you're the not only the judge but you're also my advocate." Um, and maybe that again, Brent, to your point about the, about Fox's work about that paradox is yes, you're the you're the judge and you're the jury, but you're also the source of my you know my my defense. And chapter twenty three yeah, maybe goes that way, yeah. And yeah, he just seems to be he just seems to be fishing, right? He he can't get the, what he wants from his friends. He tries different metaphors and can't get that. What about the 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 courtroom? What about if I could just get someone in there, the courtroom for me? You know, um, yeah. it's just strike out, strike out, strike out, you know, um, I mean, again, it might be a hope, but it might just be a kind of hopeless hope, you know, um, as we, you know, some of the things we, we, we talked about in, in terms of this session was, you know, can you, in, in terms of the courtroom metaphor, can you sue God, you know, and what would happen if you did, um, you know, I think Job shows that you can sue God and they, you probably will lose. <laughs> <laughs> even if, but even if you won, um, would that be a loss? You know, um, the right. the the other the other stunning um, example of these friends that I was talking about with reference to Bonhoeffer. The other example is is from Elie Wiesel's Trial of God, where the uh, most articulate defender of God in that play, uh, which is takes place in the, uh, the imminent. Um, at, at, beginning of a, of a pogrom against some Jews, um, the, the person, the only, and they've decided to put God on trial. The only person who defends God is, is Satan, you know, um, and super articulate, beautiful art, you know, theodicies that are uttered by the Satan figure that you can find in all kinds of philosophical theologians that this is, this is the explanation of the problem of evil, but Bezel says, oh, that's the Satan character <laughs> made that comment. That's you know? the temptation. Um, yeah. Yeah, but 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 so that you know, I wonder in light of God's uh, you know appearance to Job in the whirlwind and at the ash heap that maybe maybe when you you know God's God helps in presence but not in theory. <laughs> no, that in theory, yeah. God yeah, it's not going to be super helpful. The dog, you know, the, the the Odyssey that that's the, in theory God's presence doesn't help, but in actual experience hmm. that. God's God's presence helps because that's that's his that's Job's primary criterion at the moment for his doctrine of God right is this mm -hmm. is his unremitting um, painful experience that's just overwhelming him it's overwhelming his friends um, and it is a truth it's a painful truth and it's a truth that when it's experienced pain that is is uh, all encompassing truth um, yeah. but it's not the only truth um, in the world but it is the only truth for Job. Yeah. And in a moment when, uh, you know, so many people are suffering uh, with COVID um, as well, uh, this disease, which is uh, kind of torn apart the fabric of what kind of makes sense in, in our world uh, in, uh, in terms of uh, 
uh, connections. I mean, I'm thinking about pastors and churches, especially, which have uh, seen this disruption, which um, some people are trying to like return to kind of normal as quickly as possible. I think trying to narrate, you know, kind of build that narrative back. This was just a slight blip in the road. Um, it might be instructive for us to kind of sit for a while as a church and think, um, too, about uh, instead, of, instead of just trying to get back to exactly the way it was, you know, what, what does this disruption show us? Uh, disruption of our ways, our patterns, our uh, embodied um, connections, uh, but, but also uh, to really sit with the voices of grief uh, that are hard to hear right now. I, I noticed that like the voices of grief with COVID, um, I mean, uh, you know, people are dying, you know, isolated. Um, often it's people that, that society has hidden. It's, I mean, it's, it's ravaging uh, the elderly who are um, often hidden from our view in, um, in retirement homes and things like that. So all to say this, uh, uh, I feel like there's, there's a lot, there's a lot to chew on um, today uh, in all of our different experiential disruptions right now. There's economic disruptions too, but anyway, yeah. Right. Well, and, and if we go back to the pastoral care situation, what, what's our role in, in these moments? Um, you know, I think that what Job teaches ultimately, you know, in terms of who, which character is favored and all the rest, you know, it's, it's, the voice of the suffering that gets the primary emphasis and it's again um, validated and valorized in the book so that when we go into these situations um, if, if we're not suffering ourselves if we're there to to be with others you know the the, the silence of the friends um, or the the showing up of, of God I mean and, and the, the giving of these painful texts, you know, of Job as, as scripts that can be uttered by those who suffer rather than the cut flowers of, of nice doctrine that fixes everything. Um, you know, that, that, that seems to me to be what Job offers us in terms of thinking about, you know, what, what to do in times such as these, you know, it's, it's the lament songs that matter now uh not the hymns of praise and maybe those maybe those lament psalms will will get us through and we'll we'll turn to praise but we also know the lament psalms that that never quite get there psalm 88 um that that shows getting to that praise is a long term process and that some may not fully ever get there and that too is okay according to the psalms all right. Well, with that, I think that'll be our final word because we are at this point well over oh, our we're time. We're way over time. Sorry. Way over time. That's, that's okay. Um, thank you for the rich attention. discussion, Brent and Brennan. Um, lots to chew on, lots to think about. Um, but thank you, uh, Brent, for being with us. Thanks to those yes. of us who, uh, those of you who are watching on Facebook and who will watch later. Um, we're excited. Um, uh, to continue our study of Job next week at 9.30 Eastern time. And Brennan, remind us of who we have coming. We'll have uh, Chun Leong Seau, a professor uh, of Old Testament at uh, Vanderbilt uh, Divinity School. Uh, he'll be joining us. Um, he uh, also is a teacher uh, of all three of us at, at certain different points in our careers. And uh, if there's one thing that, uh, that Chun Leong Seau has, it's the tools. Uh, this he guy, has the tools. He, he has knows. the tools. Uh, if you've ever wanted... To, to get to know someone who basically knows everything about everything and who knows more languages than any of us can count. Uh, it is uh, Chunang Sao, a brilliant and wonderful uh, theologian, uh, uh, preacher, teacher, uh, extraordinaire, and someone who's writing the definitive commentary on the book of Job as we speak. So we'll be listening uh, to and interacting with his uh, thinking about the God speeches.
Thank you.